Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and as you can see, we have somebody from the Babylon Bee on with us. And if you're just listening, you're actually not going to see anything at all. Uh, Of course, you already know that. We have Kyle Mann on. He's the editor-in-chief of the Babylon Bee and co-author of How to Be a Perfect Christian and the Sacred Texts of the Babylon Bee. He lives in the greater San Diego region with his wife, Destiny, and their three boys, Emmett, Samuel, and Calvin. I guess that's better than living in the lesser San Diego area. Mm -hmm. He's also the co-author of the Babylon Bee Guide to Wokeness, which is the topic of today's conversation. Kyle, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, so... This book here, I'm going to hold it up, and you've got it like sitting beside you. I I had to order it and then wait when I ordered it because it was like back ordered on Amazon or whatever. So like it was kind of nice to finally get it in the mail. And I just your dedication page made me laugh. So before we jump into the actual book itself, I just want to let people get to know you a little bit. Everybody knows who the Babylon Bee is. If I have listeners or viewers that don't know, shame on them but they may not know who you are. And so maybe you could just give us a little bit of uh, who you are and how you got to be at the Babylon Bee. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm the editor-in-chief of the website. So my job is to filter through hundreds of terrible jokes and pick out a few good ones to publish. And uh, (laughs) I end up writing some of the headlines myself and sometimes writing some of the articles, doing Photoshops, kind of doing whatever's needed. We're still a pretty small company. I mean, as recently as a couple years ago, there was just two or three of us. So, yeah. you know, we're growing very rapidly, but still any small and growing company, you're constantly wearing many, many hats. So I'm doing all that. I also host yeah. the podcast, co-host the podcast and just do whatever's needed. So I'm kind of like a big picture guy here, you know, a visionary guy that's trying to move things forward. And, yeah. you know, I, I've been with the site since it launched six years ago. And I got involved with the site just by sending in emails. Uh, I was constantly sending in headline submissions to the founder of the website, Adam Ford, <laughs> and uh, he eventually relented and let me start writing for the site. And then uh, I took over as editor-in-chief um, four years ago now. Yeah, awesome. No, that's really great. So when you said you were sifting through hundreds of bad jokes, are you throwing shade at your coworkers or readers' submissions? Or what, what's, what's going on there? Where does that come from, I should say? Well, no, I mean... That is just the nature of comedy writing. You know, everybody has their own process, but I find that the people that kind of gravitate towards us and we end up using as writers, typically the process is like, you're just throwing stuff out there and kind of asking, you know, the old Jerry Seinfeld question, like, is this anything? You know, that's kind of like, there's a connection between Mm, this and this. Is that something? And so you're constantly pitching ideas. And uh, I did a thread on Twitter the other day where I just posted like, I just went back through the last week or so of submissions from our writers and I just posted a bunch of like, you know, rejects, like headlines we didn't use. And I got kind of a phenomenal response of people going like, these are all great. Why didn't you use these? You know, but that's kind of, you know, but I only picked the ones that I, you know, that were good enough to share even as rejects, you know, but that's kind of the editorial process is you're going to write a lot of stuff. And in the moment you're sitting there like, you know, we already have the story covered it's not just in a vacuum, like, is it funny? It's a question of, is this the right article for the Babylon Bee? Does this fit our voice? Is this, 
is it unique enough? Has yeah. this joke been told? You know, is this something that everybody else is already is already telling the joke on Twitter or whatever? So there's a lot of editorial concerns, and it's fascinating to kind of be in the hot seat trying to pick the seven or eight articles for the day when you have just a constant flood of headlines being thrown at you. You know, I, I, friends and family members, pastors texted me headline ideas. Um, you know, people DMing you stuff. <laughs> I, you know, I read hundreds of headlines a day trying to come up with the ones that, uh, that are right for us on the website. Wow, that's crazy. I can imagine you feel, yeah, inundated is probably the right word there. It's like overwhelmed, flooded with all these ideas. And I hope you never get tired of it because I feel like what you guys are, you know, what you're doing and however it is that you're coming up with things just still stays on point and is still as funny and relevant as it was when it first started and became and, you know, it's still getting more popular, but as it was gaining popularity. So, so keep it up. You know, your Twitter thread reminds me of the experience of drinking scratch beers at like craft breweries, like the ones they never, you know, put labels on and do anything. They just call them like number 267 or something. And it's like, you taste them, you're like, well, this is better than anything you have in the stores. Why am I, why aren't you making this? Everybody's taste is different, I guess. Yeah, well, and that's part of the process. You know, anytime you make a choice creatively, you're not only choosing to do that, but you're choosing against a hundred other things that you could do, you know, so that opportunity cost is something you have to keep in mind. Yeah. So it's interesting, you know, and even going through that thread of rejects, you know, I had, I don't know, I posted 20 headlines or something. Almost every one of those headlines, you had someone replying and saying, that's gold. You know, you missed a huge opportunity by not publishing that. And it's interesting seeing that from the outside, you know, as being somebody on the inside going like, I know why we couldn't have published that. And I just know intuitively from, you know, running the site for six years that that would not do well, (laughs) you know, but uh, that's, that's the interesting kind of subjective thing about comedy too. Yeah. Well, Steve Jobs is famous for saying that one of the important things Apple knew how to do was to say no to things and not make something at a certain time. And it's a huge risk as to know whether, you know, because you, if you're attached to an idea, especially, or if you maybe personally really, really liked a headline that you knew you couldn't publish, that's a tough decision, as they say. And I'm sure in the same vein, we'll shift to the book here. There's probably a lot of book ideas that you guys have on your like list of scratch book ideas. And yet this one made it and it made it out. The Babylon Bee Guide to Wokeness. I'm going to read the subtitle. How to Take Your Wokeness to the Next Level by Canceling Friends, Breaking Windows, and Burning It All to the Ground. This is such a... I don't want to just like gush here at like how amazing this book is, but it's really, really good for a very important reason. And that has to do with the fact that it's funny. And it's like supposed to be funny. It's not just you're inserting humor. I've read a good number of books about critical race theory, basically wokeism or wokeness, as you're calling it here. And this is the first one that sort of exposes the sort of woke culture in a really, really, really helpful way. And I kind of wonder, like, how did this idea originate? Like, was this one of those things that's been on the table for a while? Because woke culture, it seems, really hit its peak or stride during the pandemic. And that was pretty recently for a book to begin, you know, its original idea. So I don't know. How far back does this go and how did it how did it develop as a like, all right, we're doing this? Yeah, on one level, it was really fast. And on another level, you know, it's been years in the making because, you know, we did our How to Be a Perfect Christian back in 2018. And that's when our content was more focused on church and religion and Christian stuff. We still do a lot of those jokes and a lot of that content. But at the time, that was kind of the primary or dominant part of our audience. And so that kind of came about just like, let's write stuff, you know, like, 
longer form satire about the church in a book format. And since then, you know, we kind of cooled on doing books for a little bit. And then we did our collection book, which was the sacred text of the Babylon Bee. And as we were doing that, we were thinking, you know, it'd be pretty easy to take one topic that we've covered and kind of do a collection book. You know, like if we just did something on, you know, the Babylon Bee explains politics or the Babylon Bee explains religion or, you know, we could do short little pamphlet style books. So we had Mm -hmm. that concept kind of percolating. And then I actually started pitching a personal book of mine called The Postmodern Pilgrim's Progress. And I went and started pitching that to some book publishers through an agent. And it was kind of interesting. It's a very weird, quirky book. It's written kind of in the voice of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or The Princess Bride. So it's very breaking the fourth wall and self-referential. And it's got sci-fi elements, but it retells the story of Pilgrim's Progress in a modern-day setting with modern-day characters. You know, so instead of pliable and, and faithful or, you know, the different characters that Christian encounters, it's, you know, Benny Hinn and Donald Trump and that, you know, that kind of stuff. And I was pitching that around and that's great. Basically every Christian publisher was afraid to touch it because it's political and it's weird and it kind of sits in a really weird spot in the market. But I went and I had pitched it to, uh, or I asked my book agent like about Salem books. And he said, you know, I didn't take it to Salem. Let me talk to them. And he talked to Salem. And in passing, I also mentioned, and by the way, we have this Babylon B guide series that we're thinking of. And he kind of mentioned that also to them just in passing, like, oh, also, you know, we could do this guide thing. And they were so excited about both ideas that they immediately decided to publish uh, Postmodern Pilgrim's Progress, which comes out in, uh, in June now, and the Babylon B Guide to Wokeness. The only issue with Babylon B Guide to Wokeness is it's such a timely topic is that they wanted it like right away. So I ended up having mm. to, <laughs> so we ended up having to pull out all the stops and we signed the book contract and we wrote the whole book in like four weeks. And then it came out six months later, you know, cause that's how long it takes things to go to press. And then you were mentioning not being able to get your hands on the book. The book sold out in a week and a half or something like that, the whole first print run. And they had to get them reprinted, but because of all the supply chain issues, it was very difficult to get it printed. It was printed on special paper because of all the color illustrations and so it was a whole ordeal. It didn't come back in stock until, I think, January sometime. So uh, <laughs> it was kind of a massive smash hit success for us. And, uh, and it, was, it was a lot of fun to do. Yeah. Well, congrats on that. I mean, it's good to have a run on a book. Hopefully they printed enough to make that worthwhile to be proud of. And it sounds yeah. like you are. Well, and I don't know if this has been publicly announced anywhere, but the next book in the series is coming out in uh, September, I think. So we have the Babylon Big okay. Guide. Guide to Democracy, which will be coming out right around midterms. Awesome. That's great. Well, it's a ridiculous book. And I mean that in a very (laughs) complimentary way because, and here's why I think I love it so much, is that, and I think most people would recognize this, that there are so many things about woke culture that most of us normal people, and by normal, I mean white males, of course, uh, think are just absolutely, yeah, and heterosexual are just absolutely ridiculous. And it's like, hold on, wait, you're saying what? So I would love to know in your research, like what were some of the most bizarre things you came across? Or even just, I'm sure the research is just dates. You're just like, oh my goodness, like you can't even caricature this. Like this is its own character. Are there some bizarre elements that you can remember? Yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing is it's it's almost self-parodying. It was more difficult to make it over the top funny 
than it was to find ridiculous stuff yeah. that's already out there. You know, that's our daily struggle with writing satires. You're trying to write stuff that's funnier than reality or funnier than stuff that the left actually believes. You know, so it was more like we'd come up with a funny idea and then we had to Google it to see if the woke left had already done that and it wasn't actually satire. You know, that was more of the research <laughs> process. But one example is like we tried to do a list in there and I don't think it actually made the book, but we tried to do a list in there that was like kind of a quiz. Who said it? A CRT scholar or a white supremacist? You know, <laughs> it was like mm. we were trying to find quotes where you go back and forth and like guess who said it or whatever. And it was it was a little difficult because yeah. you would have had to swap out the word white for, you know, minority or something like that. So it was a little difficult to frame that way. But that was one of those examples where you started looking at quotes from CRT scholars. And you're like, if you just take this out and you replace the word white with whatever, it's like, this is completely racist, you know? <laughs> and that was that was kind of the element that we hit on throughout the book is just the complete yeah. hypocrisy of CRT scholars who say that they're anti-racist and they're fighting against bigotry and all this. And they're doing that by using racism, you know, and they try to redefine racism yeah. so that it doesn't cover their own brand of racism. So the, the self-parodying hypocrisy, and that is one thing that like, satire is really good at doing. Like satire is very effective at exposing hypocrisy. Anybody who's being hypocritical is, you know, that's a really good target and object of comedy. You watch any sitcom and that's kind of like the key engine that drives all the character-driven comedy is, you know, you have a guy who has standards or he has this thing that he thinks he is and yet he can never quite Mm -hmm. live up to that or he, you know, he goes off and kind of has to admit that I fell short of doing that or that. You know, and so that, that is something that satire does really effectively. And that's the way that we target the left. It's the way when we make fun of the right, you know, that's the key thing we do. Because we agree with the right on a lot of things. And yet when the right doesn't live up to the things that they actually say that they believe, that's a key element of comedy for us when we do political comedy, both in the book form and on the website. Yeah, the importance of showing it in this way is truly remarkable. And I'll give you an example. Last night I was reading up on this a little bit more before this interview. And I'm like chuckling at things and my wife is reading. And every time I chuckle out loud when she's reading in the same room, she knows that I want to tell her something. And it just so happened that this really wasn't me wanting to tell her something. Because, you know, normally when I read something, I'm not reading things that are intended to make me laugh except for randomly. So I'm like, all right, I got to read this to you anyway. And so I'm reading to her. There's a section in here that's a conversation between a white guy and a person of color and our racial minority, whatever it is. And it's like about the weather. And you go in point by point about how racist this person is and how patronizing and how colonializing it is. And my wife is just like cracking up a lot. Just me reading this because it's just like, yeah, 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 that's happening in our culture. Yep, that's happening in our culture. Yep, I've heard that person do that too. And it's just like, this is too bad to be true. You know, like there is a point at which we realize hold on, this is funny, yet, man, this is really happening. And so like, is humor, the answer is no. This is a rhetorical question, but like you can comment on on where I'm heading with this. It's like, is humor the wrong strategy to fight this? Because this is a very nefarious trend. I hope it's only a fad in the culture. So I don't know, like how far can this humor actually go to fight this thing? Yeah, absolutely. So I think humor is the right tool. I think the absurdity of the left certainly makes it more difficult. We get comments all the time like, you know, the left makes your job easy. They hand you jokes on a silver platter. It's all low-hanging fruit, you know, but it doesn't make it easy. 
it's almost mind-numbing when you look at all the insane things that are going on. G.K. Chesterton said in, in 1912, that 1912, I think, he said satire wouldn't survive because reality is too absurd to be satirized. You know, and that was 110 years ago that he said that. And imagine, you know, just how much how much we've progressed into all this kookiness that how much more difficult satire is to write. But no, yeah. but, I, but I think it's very important. And I think, it, I think it is the right tool because I think satire is effective because it helps cut through the noise. It helps cut through all the think pieces and commentators and the straight news that you read day after day. My personal experience is that I go online and I don't, it's so mind-numbing and it's so depressing that I don't like read the news or watch the news or read opinion pieces on this or that because it's just like, I don't know, it becomes this constant just torrential downpour of commentary and thought, you know, and it's like, mm-hmm. I don't know, it, it just starts to numb you. And Chesterton also said that humor can get in under the door while seriousness is still fumbling at the handle. And I think that was a, just such an insightful quote to the power of humor and satire wow. to just kind of say what everybody is trying to say in a way that we are not completely numb to it. You know, I, I don't like any news story comes out and you already know what the Daily Wire's take is going to be on it. You know, you know what Ben Shapiro is going to say. You know what CNN's going to say about it. You know what Fox News is going to say about it. You know what Newsmax is going to say about it. You know, you know what the Libertarian Christian Institute is going to say about it. <laughs> I'm <laughs> just kidding. But um, I, I, I uh, you know, you just, you, you, you kind of you know where everybody's going to stand on it. So the power, yeah. of, the power of humor, and I'm not saying this specific to the Babylon Bee, but the power of any good humor or satire or comedy is that you don't know where the comedian's going to come from necessarily. Like the Babylon Bee, we obviously make jokes targeting the left a lot. You know, you kind of know generally where our worldview stands. But at the same time, yeah. we can just come out and do a joke that lightens the mood on something or... Maybe it does kind of parrot a right-wing talking point or a libertarian talking point, or maybe it, maybe it punches at our own audience. You know, there's kind of this real freedom in comedy and satire to write what you want to write that's just funny just because you want to write it. And I think it has a power to really communicate so effectively and cut through so much noise in a way that yeah. straight news often doesn't. Yeah, well, what makes it sort of you know, like stick in the minds of people is that it's unexpected. Like the way in which you approach something like that. I could look at this cover of this book and be like, oh, okay, this is going to be funny. And I'm going to be like, are they going to make fun of the left? But you outperform in one way because I kind of know what to expect, but it's even better. And once I started reading, I realized that this is a very familiar style to me because I used to read Glenn Beck's books back like 15, 20 years ago. And he wrote this sort of like make fun of the left stuff, but it was all different topics and, and, and all of that. And this just like exceeded because it is just so dead on. And so, yeah, you're right. It's like the way that humor attacks something, it exposes it. And, you know, of course, everything you just said. So we've gotten in about halfway through this conversation. And I would assume that wokeness is a little more easily definable than critical race theory. So, but maybe it's a slippery term. But what do you guys mean by wokeness? Yeah, I mean, again, yeah, it is a moving target for sure. It's difficult to pin down wokeness, you know, and it's an evolving term in that, you know, wokeness meant something different 10 years ago than it does today. But I think generally it is Marxist theory that, or neo-Marxist theory, whatever you want to call it, that you can divide society into the classes of the oppressor and the oppressed. And everything you do in life and all your challenges and problems are due to that. All of society's 
issues can be summed up in that there is an oppressor class that is keeping you from what you want, is keeping you from happiness because you are oppressed. And so it becomes kind of this scramble or this race to the bottom of to be the one who is the most intersectional, you know, to be the one who has the most labels of oppression. And Mm -hmm. it, it really is a destructive worldview because it's something that keeps you from happiness. You know, it's something that doesn't tell you you know, that there is goodness in this world, that you can be grateful for what God has given you, even when you're in a ridiculously tough situation, you know, and it tells you that you can't change your situation by working hard or by, you know, by taking control of your life, by taking responsibility. You can only improve your situation by toppling this hierarchy, you know, through brutal and bloody revolution, ultimately. And it's such a destructive thing that to just constantly deconstruct everything. So I think that's kind of what we were going for. Obviously, in the book, being humorous, we had to like tackle very specific topics because that made for the best visual humor. So we talk about wokeness as applied in different areas rather than on the philosophical level. But we we took on wokeness mm-hmm. as applied to race and gender. You know, we, we did a lot of stuff on the peaceful protest uh, <laughs> movement with uh, with Antifa and how they kind of violently try to deconstruct and reorient society around their ideals. So that's kind of in a nutshell what we were looking at when we were talking about wokeness. And that's kind of how we structured the book. And in the beginning, we talk about, you know, you want to be oppressed. Nothing in your life is your fault. It's all the fault of your oppressors. And, you know, you can never accomplish anything in life and you're going to be miserable. You know, and that was like how we started it out. And then we just went to the different areas of of oppression and how you would live your life being woke. And, and we, do, we did it kind of as a journey to wokeness where by the end of the book, you, yeah. are, you are completely woke and entirely miserable. It's like re-education camp in 200 pages. <laughs> with, with stick figures, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with stick figures and icons. And, you know, it's multicolored here, which of course you probably had to do by law or something. Hi, this is Dr. Norman Horn. And if you like the Libertarian Christian podcast, then you'll definitely like our other podcast, Good News, Bad News, a roundtable where you can join me, Matt, Carrie, Doug, Aaron, and others as we analyze the news from a Libertarian Christian perspective. Check us out on YouTube, your favorite podcast app, or on libertarianchristians.com slash roundtable. So how does wokeness in your mind differ from like the standard leftist, maybe progressive tropes of the last couple decades? Yeah, I mean... I think progressives always kind of flirted with those ideas of like oppressor and oppressed. But at least, you know, in the last 10, 20 years, they wouldn't have said like, America is an irredeemably racist oppressor country, and we need to topple the entire hierarchy and rebuild it from the ground up. You know, when you kind of get woke and you start to see everything through this lens, you see everything through your woke goggles, then nothing is redeemable. Everything is racist, you know. Everything is classist. Everything is sexist. Mm -hmm. Everything in your life oppresses you in some way, you know? And I I think the left has some noble goals, you know? Like, I think the left says we want want society to be better. Like, we want to help people that are poor. Like, those are, on one level, they're, like, good goals. We want to treat people with dignity. Like, yeah, we want people to have human rights. You know, it's like, those are things that you can be, like, you can agree with them on. But the way that wokeness wants to accomplish those things is destructive and won't actually result in those goals. You know, and that's where it's hard to argue with people on the left and especially people in the woke movement because you're like, I also agree that it would be nice to lift up everybody in society to have more wealth, you know, (laughs) that people would have 
access to food and healthcare and clean water. We all want these things. It's just the way that I think we should accomplish them is very different from the way you think we should accomplish them. But I think you can't really talk to the left in those terms because to them, you can't, we can't simply like help people get out of poverty using capitalism because capitalism is a white, you know, supremacist, racist, you know, like once you start seeing things through those lenses, you can't ever look at the good in things. You always have to look at the evil, you know? So there's no, there's no, there's no path to redemption. There's no salvation. It's just constant misery. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I mean, there is a danger there that people are, it's like they're going overboard. It's like they're taking things to this extreme of like, well, if I can't have this, it must be your fault, you know, because, you know, you're white. And, you know, in the past, that actually might have been the case, right? Like 150, 200 years ago, those types of situations might be the case, but it's like somehow those just have made their way into our current culture. And I'm not saying that there's no vestiges of those things, but yeah, you're, you're right. It's certainly worth mocking as you've done quite, quite much. What is your favorite chapter? Oh, I like the one about how to fight fascism with violence. I think it's chapter eight. Yeah. The, <laughs> I'll never tire of, of the comedy of Antifa thinking that they're fighting fascism and the means and the tools <laughs> that they use are like marching around in the street, chanting their special chant, doing their special salute. You know, like there was that video in Washington, D.C. back from the Summer of Love or whatever, where that lady was sitting outside the restaurant and Antifa surrounds her and they're trying to get her to chant Black Lives Matter or something. And she's like, look, I, I'm on your guys' side. Like, I, I just not gonna, I don't want to chant it. I don't want to say it. You know, and they're like, chant it, do the chant. And they're screaming at her face. You know, and it's like, say the special salute, you know, or, or say the special phrase. And it's like, you know, I just love that image of like doing, you know, burning books, looting, you know, breaking things, using violence, like using all the tools that the Nazis used and saying that you are the one fighting against Nazis will never not be funny to me. <laughs> Maybe I'm the only one, but I think uh, it's there's a lot. Of, <laughs> no, there's a lot of material there. We got to use physical comedy in there, you know, so we had the stick figures are great. Yeah. So we got to have the stick figures doing all kinds of Antifa fight moves and Antifa self-defense. And <laughs> I love that kind of stuff. So that was a lot of fun. <laughs> I think my favorite chapter is the one on American history where you point out how racist Abraham Lincoln was and how white supremacist Martin Luther King was. Was I don't know, where did that idea come from? I mean, this is an important aspect to understanding our history. So it's it's kind of clearly it belongs. But I don't know if you want to share a little bit more with our listeners what was some of the contents of that? Because it's really, I don't know, it was my favorite chapter. So I just thought you'd share more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, again, that comes back to the woke movement makes you see everything through those lenses, you know? So you look at history and it really takes away any kind of nuance, you know, from your view of things. It strips everything of nuance because you can't just look at American history and go, there was a lot of bad stuff there. You know, (laughs) there was a lot of bad stuff. There was a lot of stuff that we're not proud of in the way that obviously slavery, and then the way we treated Native Americans. You can look at the history of America and go, yeah, there's some really bad stuff there. And yet you can do that and not subscribe to this woke worldview that therefore today we have to correct all those wrongs by punishing people who had nothing to do with it and by dismantling everything that it has built into. You know, I I think there... You know, I personally believe that the Christian worldview really leads you to gratitude. You know, it leads you to this place where you go, 
I could have been born at the worst time in human history. You know, if I was born 100 years ago, my life would have been so much worse than it is today, you know, even if mm-hmm. I was one of the wealthiest people on the planet. And so there's this real sense of gratitude in going, why did God, you know, sovereignly decree that I would be born in the most prosperous time in the most prosperous nation in human history? And I think there's a humility and a gratitude that goes into recognizing, was there bad stuff that led up to this point? Yeah, there was. And at the same time, I think God has worked through human history to lift so many people out of poverty and to just grow so many things like technology and, you know, access to water and healthcare and growing wealth around the the world, growing wealth in our nation. Like you can just have a real gratitude for that while at the same time accepting okay, yeah, there was a lot of bad stuff back then. And, and let's not repeat those mistakes. Yeah, The way that the woke left looks at it is like, no, we have to tear the entire thing down, even if that causes more human suffering and misery today, you know, <laughs> which is just a bizarre way of looking at things. So we had to cover that topic. We did it early in the book, I believe, because it was like, you know, obviously history. And then we're moving into how you look at things today. And mm-hmm. I think American history is one of those areas that they're attacking because as soon as, if you want to cause a cultural revolution, you do have to attack the history of the nation first. You know, you see that through all the communist nations that have had communist revolutions. And that's where the woke left is starting today with things like the 1619 Project, etc. When I hear people defend critical race theory being taught in schools, and what it is, is they're not really defending that. What they're saying is, well, we just got to teach history because, you know, we have a generation of kids that just don't know about slavery or something. And I'm just like, wait a second. I went to public school. I went to private Christian school, a conservative private Christian school. And I was also homeschooled by an even more conservative curriculum. And I knew about all these things. And I was told these were terrible and that these were parts of our history that we should not be proud of. So I'm like, where? I mean, I don't know. What was your experience? I mean, I think we're roughly the same age. My guess is that, I mean, I don't know. What was your history with hearing about those things? Were you shielded from knowing about slavery as a kid? Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, I I went to public school and we learned all that stuff. So yeah, and learned that it was bad. You know, <laughs> it was, there wasn't really whitewashing. There wasn't, you know, they didn't shy away from that. It wasn't a completely, you know, it wasn't a curriculum based on like deconstruction, like therefore we have to topple everything. But it was a curriculum like, yeah. look, there was a lot of, you know, all the way through the civil rights movement, you know, and you you looked at that. I think as a kid, you know, you look at that and you realize with some horror, like that that was 30 years ago. Like, you know, like you're like, that was our nation 30 years ago that there was still things like Jim Crow laws. I don't know. You kind of instinctively recognize that there's still some influence on our nation today. Like some people still probably think like that. It wasn't that long ago. But I think that instills in you this caution to like, let's be careful not to repeat that, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know where this comes from, that people don't get taught slavery or don't get taught about the bad things in our nation's past. I mean, I, I think it's probably just that it's not sufficiently focused on deconstruction. And that's probably where that comes from. That's why they're upset about it is there's no like agenda to teaching it. It's just information. And apparently that's not enough, I guess. I had a friend who told me that his wife's a teacher and she was relaying an experience that they were, that I forget what age level, it might've been like fourth or fifth grade. And his comment was that these kids, it's a multiracial classroom and that these kids just treat each other as equals. They don't see, uh, here I am being a white supremacist saying they don't see color. You know, of course, what we mean by that is they don't think of that person as like, oh, you're black. I need to treat you differently. You're just like, you're my friend. You're my classmate. I like you. We have similar interests. We play together, whatever. And then they get into this like history class where they're like, okay, by the way, 
your grandfather and your great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather or whatever had a particular relationship that made one guy oppressed and the other guy an oppressor. And so what we're going to do is we're going to divide the room up. And we're just like, his comment was like, this is a terrible idea to be like teaching our kids something that make them completely uncomfortable and also sort of undermined the just natural experience of growing up in a non-racist situation. And it's a real tragedy to me that that's going on. I want to use that to somewhat pivot maybe awkwardly to a question I have for you, which is, I don't know, maybe you are like this way, but I'd like to think that you're more charitable to people in person. I'm guessing when you talk to people who might be woke, you're not constantly mocking them the way that this book is. So what are some ways that you've actually like seriously handled conversations with even online or in person, if you have friends that way, this sort of mindset? Yeah, I just, I just straight up punch them right in the mouth. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I can talk to people who disagree with me and... The reason that I like writing for the Babylon Bee is because it's kind of the Batman mask, you know, like I can make all these jokes that a lot of people wouldn't make or that like people would be uncomfortable saying by themselves and we can do it under the Babylon Bee brand and I'm like safe, like that's something else, you know. So I talk to someone in person and I'm I'm a very introverted, quiet person and I'm probably not even going to argue with them, you know. <laughs> I'll just ask people like, well, that's interesting. Why do you think that? Or like, you know, maybe a pushback on, on things here or there, but I, I, I don't like getting in political discussions or arguments in person. I just, I don't know. Maybe it's just a cynical thing, but it's like, I would much rather just hang out with someone and connect over common interests. And then if politics comes up, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, we've built a relationship. Maybe we can have a small discussion here and there, but it's just interesting to hear where people are coming from. And then I'm not very confrontational in person to where I would actually try to debunk someone's ideas. I think especially online, like online, people don't change their minds. Like this is the way that psychology works. People don't, people don't sit there and like you make this awesome argument or you blast them with a classic meme or a dank meme or whatever, and they change their minds. Like that just doesn't happen typically. I think it happens much more when you're just being civil with people and you're talking and you have a good relationship and maybe those things come up in conversation. So that's much more my style in person versus, uh, you know, we're blasting people on the Babylon Bee or whatever. Yeah. It's probably similar to how I am as well. I don't really like to get into de political debates with people. Just it's kind of my style as well. Well, my next question for you, you already kind of went into it like at the beginning of the conversation, which is what's on the horizon for the Babylon Bee. So if there's anything else you want to share and you can just let people know where they can buy the book or, or where the best place to buy the book is. I don't know yeah, if it absolutely. supports you more to buy it from your site or Amazon or whatever. Yeah, anywhere's fine. Amazon's fine. Our, um, we have the book on our website as well. All of our books are on there, How to Be a Perfect Christian, The Sacred Text, and The Babylon Begot of Wokeness. My own book, The Postmodern Pilgrim's Progress, comes out in June. That's going to be a lot of fun. And then in September, we have The Babylon Bee Guide to Democracy coming out. So that's going to be a lot of fun, too. We have a lot of big stuff in store at The Babylon Bee that we've been working on. We're very excited about. We've been working hard on our YouTube channel where we're releasing comedy sketches on a regular basis. So you can subscribe to that at youtube.com slash The Babylon Bee. And, of course, you can follow The Babylon Bee on most any social site, including Truth Social, Trump's exciting new social site that will definitely last a long time. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see how that works out. Maybe your presence there will keep it lasting for a long <laughs> time. That'll be the afloat. only reason to keep it <laughs> keep it afloat for sure. Well, Kyle, I appreciate you joining me and joining our listeners to talk about this. The book is The Babylon Bee Guide to Wokeness. Go get it today. Otherwise, you're just a white supremacist. Thanks, man. Thanks a lot. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.